Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Welcome, Ryan Turnbull, to the Prying Priest Podcast. I'm very excited to have you on for a couple of reasons. One is because every time I think I'm smart and then I talk to you, I am, you know, the wings burn off of my Icarus star body and I and I fall back down to earth. Um, so I very much enjoy the conversations because I think I grow a little bit every single time uh, that I talk with you. Um, but actually, before we started recording, we were talking about that time at Beerology for those that might remember all the way back to Braden's episode where he told the story of an, a kind gentleman who erupted in um, an, 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 an exclamation of passion. And, uh, and, yeah, and uh, I think Ryan uh, wanted to have a, a, a public... Um, yeah, uh, well... Go ahead, go ahead, Ryan. I have no excuse for that. I don't even remember what the conversation was. If I have an excuse, it was that I was working on the farm all summer and... Uh, Never talked to anybody. So I'd, I'd drive into Winnipeg for these beerology events and uh, I just lost it on on a guy and uh, to my eternal shame. And the thing is, like, I thought, oh, I'll never see this person again. Then he moved onto my street and uh, I saw him regularly and I still like bump into these people. And then I was listening to the Prying Priest podcast in preparation for today. And I hear this story being trotted out again. And I'm like, oh, man. I am just never going to be taken seriously as an ecumenist after that. But uh, anyways, I'm sorry about that. That was, um, it's something that I still think about to my shame. <laughs> but Yuri has been gracious enough to uh, continue being my friend despite it all. It's been hard work to still be your friend, but uh, no, 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 no. It's, <laughs> um, it's been great. Uh, I, I also thought we would actually do something special in this episode. Uh, oh, yeah. Right, right, right here as we begin. So, so those that uh, don't know uh, Ryan uh, or me, we were actually in a band together uh, <laughs> yeah. back in like 2012, 2013 or so, kind of like a folk band in in southern Manitoba. And yeah, Ryan we played, cool. yeah, yeah, named Queens Brigade. Ryan played the violin or yeah. the fiddle. What would you call it? Uh, probably violin. I I was not good enough to be a fiddle player. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then uh, we actually, I, I got to know this band because I offered to record their album. And yeah. Halfway, well, do, do you remember, I think like, I think I met you, we played that really weird gig at like the, the synagogue. synagogue. Yeah, yep. like mm-hmm. Temple Shalom, I think on Grant there. And then, yes. yep. and then afterwards, um, so like uh, there was a guy named Dan in the band and his girlfriend at the time was is best friends with Nikaila and which is my wife yeah and then um she was like oh yeah Nikaila's got this this guy who like he's really inter- interested in recording and all that stuff and they're here tonight and so then we met you then and then all of a sudden we're like yeah let's record something and then like 
you were brilliant. And then you started laying down some drum tracks and boom, you were in the band with us, um, which is actually <laughs> yeah. kind of how I weaseled in because like, I'm not a good musician and I was just friends with everybody. And I was just like, please, please, please let me in the band. Yeah. And then uh, they carried me for three years until we uh, all got married and dissolved mm-hmm. the band. So, so this uh, famous Dan that we just mentioned, he's actually one of our patrons. So this is our first patron uh, call out. So thank you, Dan, for being a loyal patron. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm going to do actually right now is just fade in a clip of a song from our band Queen's Brigade. And then I will fade it out and then we'll continue continue our discussion. So the, the clip that I want to play features Ryan on, oh, no. on the violin. And it's from the song Geese Know Better. And you can find this album on iTunes. I think you can still find it on iTunes. Yeah, it's it's on YouTube Music as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. So if you look up uh, Queen's Brigade, I don't even know if we are ever being sent money by iTunes. I don't think anyone I think it goes money. into Dan's account, he told me. Oh, okay. I, I think he's gotcha. just transferring it to his patron support. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that was beautiful, Ryan. Oh, it's always no. beautiful to hear your your uh, high soaring uh, violin. Oh man, I, and your solo. We just uh, so like we just got a new place this summer, and we finally had room for musical instruments. So we found a, a free piano on Kijiji, and uh, mm. like Rachel's got her grade eight piano, so she's actually a musician. And so we mm. got that, and we've been like really enjoying that and i i broke up my violin one night and i'm just like oh man i had because i haven't touched it basically since queen's brigade dissolved which is like when i went off to seminary and so i'm just like i can't i can't do anything on there anymore it's the mm-hmm. worst yeah i've been picking up the guitar a bit again and i'm lear- basically learning from scratch but yeah yeah um well, maybe let's get into some of your story. So, so I remember when you were probably one of the most faithful uh, beerology attendants. So, for our listeners, beerology was an interdenominational Christian discussion group that I would host in my living room, and people would come, and you'd kind of have different people every time, and some regulars. I think Ryan was probably our one of our most devoted regulars, <laughs> and I, I remember that you would like come out as something theologically different every time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be like, well, today I'm a universalist. Ah, today I'm coming out as this today. I'm coming out as that. Um, so yeah. What was it about, you know, maybe that time in your life that made you, uh, so that go along was... with certain, um, traditions. Yeah. So we were, let me just get the timeline right on that. So the band had pretty much wrapped up by then we were both married. You were living in that, basement suite right mm-hmm. yeah i was living in a basement suite in niverville i think i hosted one of them actually one time when you couldn't but yes um, yep. 
So yeah, I was starting seminary and basically, so like I went to Providence University College and Theological Seminary and I was there for seven years. I did three years undergrad, then I worked there for a year and then three years in my master's. And the three years, I kind of like came to Prov as like a pretty conservative evangelical with like fundamentalist tendencies. Um, but like the point to go to Bible college uh, was that, you know, you get this foundation for the rest of your life, right? Well, that didn't happen at all. Everything just like blew up, right? So my professors just shattered everything I believed. And then actually seminary was when I like started putting back together the pieces. Um, I think some folks, particularly in the mainline, they don't do an undergrad in theology. They just go straight to seminary. And so they have to do all that work at seminary. Luckily, because I'm not as smart uh, as, as most people called to the ministry, I got double the amount of time to do that. So when virology was happening, I had had everything smashed. And so I was trying to put it back all the pieces. And I was really looking around for resources to do that. Mm. Uh, and I think starting seminary, there was like some weird things. A couple of really close people to me had died right at the end of college, or like while I was working in that year. Um, and like kind of weirdly meaningless deaths, like um, my friend, Sean, who I went to high school with, he had um, muscular dystrophy. So he wasn't mm -hmm. supposed to live past 16, but he lived till we were like 22 or something like that. Um, but it was still kind of like, okay, so what's the point of that life, right? Like he just suffered for the last eight years in a bed and, uh, <laughs> and then that's it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then like the day before, I think the day, it was like the week before seminary started. I remember we we went to um, St. Benedict's Retreat Center, which is just north of Winnipeg up on the, the Red River there. Mm -hmm. And uh, like a friend of mine had committed suicide. So uh, I was just like, well, like, I don't want to be at some spiritual retreat. I don't feel spiritual. And so mm -hmm. I really leaned into like Jürgen Moltmann that year and like um, kind of that the problem of evil and suffering don't have an answer per se, besides the crucified Christ, um, that kind of stuff. Also like universalism seemed pretty good. I was really heavily flirting with orthodoxy at the time. Um, so, and I kept like trotting out basically I would go to biology and you, you and the Winkler converts would tell me something about orthodoxy. And I would triumphantly trot that back to my Protestant school and be like, what do you think about this professors? And, uh, so yeah, I did a lot in my like uh my papers that I was handing in were very similar of like, oh, I'm coming out as this now. And it's just like, mm, okay. Well, like all of that stuff is probably <laughs> not anything I would like want to yeah, say yeah, yeah. that's crassly today, but yeah. Needed to be done. So so when so let's take a step like earlier in your life. Mm -hmm. So then what what was what was faith like in the home? Uh did you go to were you part of a family that like went to church regularly? What role did faith have in your in your day-to-day -day life? Yeah. So um to like tell that story well needs to actually go back like long before me. Mm -hmm. My my great 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 grandfather was um so in the middle of the 19th century, there was a schism in the Scottish church. So the, the, the Scottish church is like uh, Presbyterian, but it was like a state church, right? And then and you're talking like the church that currently in like at the time in Scotland? Yeah, or are like we talking immigrants? 
No, no, no. The Church of Scotland. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was part of the free, the free church that schismed from it. So mm-hmm. I actually, I know this because I have his Bible that he was given by the, the, like the Bible printing society of that denomination. So he went and served up in the Hebrides for a while. Um, the congregation gave him this Bible. And then at some point he ended up as a missionary, like coming down to Yorkshire, joined the church of England, uh, I guess was received as a priest. We think that he must've had like some kind of inner demons because from there, he like ended up in the far flung corners of the empire in, in Argentina as a missionary, which like the story seems to be, he was pretty unscrupulous. Um, like would steal horses from the last tribe and bring them to the next tribe as a gift to smooth the way. So anyways, so that's like, I've got this um, church of England, Scottish waspy kind of background, right? Mm -hmm. His, um, he ends up actually retiring in Binscarth um, where I'm from. And if you go into St. Matthew's parish there, you'll see that he's on the list of rectors right around like the turn of the last century. Where's Binscarth? Um, it is on the number 16 highway, uh, just about 10 miles from the Saskatchewan border. So you'd go through like Binscarth, mm. Russell, and then you'd hit the Saskatchewan border. Right. So like in, in Manitoba then? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so his son, James came up to Canada, homesteaded our farm. And then there's been this like long line of Turnbulls there ever since. Um, so then his son, my great grandfather, he married a Methodist some dangerous ecumenism was in the air and uh, (laughs) the United church of Canada was actually formed in that year, 1925. So instead of fighting, Oh, are we going to be Anglicans? Are we going to be Methodists? Well, okay. There's this new thing, pan Protestant United church of Canada. Let's just join that. So that opens across the street from the Anglican church. So then my family was United church until me. um, And my, I think when my dad was a kid, He'd been like basically quit going to church when he was like 10 or 12 because my grandpa had gotten a fight with the pastor kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of he self-described. He's like, oh, yeah, I kind of grew up a pagan. Um, and then like he said, I figured I was going to hell, but you kids still stood a chance. So they went back to church for the kids, like a very typical yep. boomer move in Canadian religiosity. Right. Go back mm-hmm. to church for the kids. So I was baptized. My brother was baptized in the United Church of Canada. Um, and then they looked around and they realized there are no um, young people here at all. Like the next youngest person is my parents was like 20 years older than them. So they cast about. They're like, well, if we're only here for the kids, the only church in the area that has anything for kids is the Christian Missionary Alliance up in Russell. So that's where we ended up. Uh, and I only remember growing up in that church. Mm -hmm. So that's really what formed me growing up and like really robust Sunday school, youth group, Bible quizzing. We all went up to Dauphin Bible camp. That's where like our church sent everybody for the summer, which was a a Canadian Sunday school mission Bible camp. I don't think they're called that anymore, but that was like the brand. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So that was kind of like the milieu. And then the, the culture of that was you go to a year of Bible college after and it didn't have to be Bible college. It could be like a discipleship school, like Cape and Ray or YWAM. Some sort of Christian program. Yeah, like my brother did YWAM. Um, my two best friends from high school, we each went to a different Bible college. So like I went to Providence. 
the dangerous liberal school, <laughs> which it really is not. Uh, my other friend went to Briarcrest, and then the third one went to Miller. So that was like that was kind of like the acceptable range of options, uh, right. or, or obviously the the denominational school, which would be Ambrose. But yeah, mm-hmm. when you look back on maybe that uh, that first church that you remember going to, um, could could you maybe name like one or two good things that you kind of have taken from there and have kept in your life, uh, but also maybe one or two bad things from there that you've maybe uh, kept on your mind moving forward? Yeah. So I think like recently I've been thinking a lot about growing up in that church and I think like on the whole, it did a really good job. Right. So like, um, and it was in maybe perhaps in spite of itself because like, uh, for example, we just randomly didn't have a youth pastor the years that I was in youth and it was like parents getting involved and a bunch of, so I have like all these mentors from then that were like God fearing men and women who put a lot of time into caring for me. And like, when I look at like kind of the crop from that time, we're all kind of like still in the church and a lot of us are in church ministry. So obviously like something really formative happened. Um, I think so that some of the, the distinctives of Alliance church kind of spirituality are like, you always open everything with prayer. That's like in the bylaws. And I think that's like, um, that has served me well. Um, and there was a huge emphasis on, on reading scripture and actually knowing scripture. So what I what I discovered when I came to, uh, Bible college, um, and now that I'm in the Anglican church, like, I just know the Bible really well in a way that like I take for granted and almost nobody else does. So I like, I'll make these references and be like, Oh, you know, this story and like blank stares. Um, so there was a lot of like in the later years, there was a lot of this one interim pastor that I couldn't stand. He would stand up there like shaking the Bible. And I got really mad at him because um, he was always telling us how much we could trust the, the damn thing. But he never like really opened it up and read it and like talked about what it said. Whereas like I think earlier iterations of that church when it was a bit healthier, because it went through a lot of conflict when I was in high school. And so a lot of my like bad feelings about the church are like the way it handled that conflict and that that fallout from it. But when it was in a healthier state, I think like we did open up the Bible and we did actually learn it. And I think it's not a lot of people kind of um condemn Bible memorization as being like a fundamentalist thing and, Oh, you can, you can know the Bible, but like, does it transform you or anything like that? But I think like as a child, right, you actually just need to learn it because, um, and there is this kind of like, that's a pretty ancient pedagogical rule. Uh, I think that the rabbis used to like make you memorize this page of scripture and they put honey on it and you'd have to like kind of kiss that off. And that was the like, um, because this, the, the law is sweet to your, mm-hmm, on your tongue, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, so there's a certain kind of sense that as a child, what you need to be responsible for is just actually like learning the book. Um, and yeah. then you, you develop into kind of mature thoughts about it. And I think what, what that church did was provide that, what it was incapable of doing. It had, it had so cut itself off from the rest of the tradition that it actually wasn't able to, to have kind of deeper theological thoughts about things. It had a really shallow ecclesiology, had no sense of where the other resources were. And so when problems came, it was just me and the Bible. Well, it turns out 
that can't always answer all the problems, all the difficulties. So I think one of the trajectories that sent me on was like in search of some deeper traditions and the Alliance church in a lot of ways, it kind of grows out of the holiness movement. So it's inspired by a kind of like uh, Methodism. There's a lot of that Methodist holiness stuff in it. So I found kind of accidentally, like in my own intellectual journey, that I kind of latched on to certain Methodist thinkers, which then led me into Anglicanism. So like there, mm. there is kind of like a so spo- spoiler alert. Yeah. There is kind of like an underlying trajectory to the whole, to the whole thing that I think really comes. I've at least I've tried to narrate for myself how it actually is a result of this upbringing I had. Mm, yeah. So then obviously uh, I remember having conversations with you um, one time at um, one time at, I think it was Tom Bargain where we met, which is a coffee shop in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of asking questions about um, orthodoxy, but also relative to Anglicanism. And, and, and I think kind of looking back on or having conversations with you after that moment, and then looking back on that conversation, maybe you can sort of tell me if I'm on the right track here, that you were basically trying to figure out maybe the the role that orthodoxy could have, but then you found that you could do all the stuff you wanted out of orthodoxy within your ancestral Anglican tradition. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think... Um, oh, by the way, I'm wearing my Tom Bargain sweater. Nice. Represent. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> we need to we need to get them sponsoring you so it can like send you yeah they're, they're Tom Bargain sponsor. Now. I oh really yeah I I I've made a promise not to have any sponsors or anything on my show that it right. only functions with patrons but you know I I did make an exception that if Sonny Beans the bar in, right. in Steinbach yeah. wants to <laughs> wants to sponsor I will do that and I will I will accept you know a Tom Bargain sponsorship but that's it yeah no more. <laughs> No more sponsors. We're going to get you shilling for every small business in Southern Manitoba. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like the orthodoxy thing, I think like, you know, uh, so I read, okay, I'll maybe answer that by way of a book I recently read. Uh, Willie Jennings, um, he wrote this book after whiteness and he observed something that I thought was like right on the money. So he said he had these, these couple um young white men come to him. So he was the Dean at Duke and now he teaches at Yale. So these two white men came to his seminary and um, they had all these interesting ideas about racial reconciliation and all this kind of stuff. But by the end of their time in seminary, they had become tradition, traditioned men, right? Uh, they'd found a tradition. One of them, I don't know. I can't remember which their traditions were, but perhaps one had like latched onto Orthodox and one had latched onto Presbyterianism or something like that, but they found a place in a tradition. And all of a sudden by the end, they just had these like formulaic responses to things. Mm-hmm. And I think like a bit of what I was looking for was like the Alliance church has an underdeveloped sense of its tradition. It's not that there isn't a tradition that explains it, right? It's just in the internal talk of that tradition. We don't talk about that tradition. Right. We, there's a, there's a kind of creeping primitivism where we think, oh, we're basically just the, the, the church of acts reading our Bibles and doing this kind of stuff without realizing like how traditioned that way, that way of being church actually is. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's one of the ways ideology hides itself from, from itself. Right. So what I was looking for was like to make that more explicit, the easy way to do that is just to like convert to something that really wears its tradition on its sleeve. Right. Um, and, and so you see this a lot and it's particularly people in my demographic, right. Uh, mm-hmm. who they convert to Roman Catholicism or, or Eastern Orthodoxy or whatever, because it gives them a, like a, a tradition. And they, we like, we actually have a name for these people. They end up becoming trads, right? Like, um, and that's, that's fine. And I think like, um, that's good. I wonder if that's the best place to end up though. Right. Like, I think it's an important place for people to, to maybe go through. Again, you need to learn something in order to move beyond it. Right. Uh, so I think what I was looking for in Orthodoxy was a bit of that. And I kind of realized, though, that actually I do have a tradition. And it has partly to do with my family history. And then also um, what was going on politically in the background was like, of course, the TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was playing out in Winnipeg and um, all that stuff. And realizing, yeah, there's a residential school a few miles from my place. Uh, there's a Métis settlement in my um uh, municipality that was like extinguished by government officials and all this kind of stuff. And, and I don't know, like, I don't think my family had a direct role to play in any of that stuff, but definitely benefited and, um, uh, cooperated with the powers that be. My great grandfather was a politician. So presumably if he would have been very irate about it, he could have done something about it. And there's no evidence that he did. He either knew or cared about it. Um, like perhaps he did. I just don't know that part of, of his story. Right. So I don't want to like, you know, speak ill of the dead, but um, so yeah, I guess all that to say, I kind of realized, well, I'm an English speaking Anglo white person. And there's an important way in which the Orthodox church does not have um, like an indigenized identity. I know like you're working on that actually. Like, and perhaps in a generation, there will be a more like Western orthodoxy that would be an option. But I think Anglicanism represents some of that. And also it had, I think Anglicanism, what it does that no other tradition can do is it like holds together the Catholic with um, the Protestant in this really nice way. So like I came in as an evangelical, there's a lot of room for me. Um, and like, but you can also access, like I, I attended a cathedral for a while where we regularly every Sunday paid, prayed for all of the ancient, ancient patriarchal seas, like around the Mediterranean. Right. Um, so it's able to kind of like speak in both directions in a way that I felt like I needed to keep holding on to. Cause there was, really no way I was going to root out all of my Protestant tendencies if I were to jump ship to something completely new and foreign. Mm -hmm. This is a common theme that's come up in a couple of interviews. This, this common trope that happens with people that convert from whatever they were to becoming Orthodox uh, in Canada or the United States, more so in Canada than the United States, mm-hmm. um, because the United States tends to have this, you are American first, and then you are your other heritage, right? So if you're right. Ukrainian, you're American first, then, you know, then yeah. you're Ukrainian on the side. Whereas in Canada, especially in the Southern Ontario region, 
which you know with Toronto being such a such a diverse city that you have this idea of you maintain your cultural heritage first and Canada is being Canadian it's almost weird to hear people describe their themselves as you know my my heritage is Canadian like you just yeah. don't really hear that well because I think um, we have a sense that that might be a racist thing to say <laughs> <laughs> I think some people have a sense that that might be a racist thing to say but um the the yeah one of the things that's come up a couple in a couple of different interviews is this trope of people becoming orthodox and then feeling and taking on the culture of the particular orthodox church they join so if you join a russian orthodox church yeah. people feel that they have to learn russian and yeah. take on russian traditions greek same thing with the greek orthodox church um and yeah and, and in certain cities in canada that's functionally true there there yeah. are no um there are no homegrown options, so to speak. Yeah, I would suggest that's actually true of like of religion in Canada more generally. Like, so um, before, like a couple of years ago, I was the director of Chai Immigrant Center in Winnipeg and like kind of doing a lot of reading around the history of immigration and the role of the church. I began to realize, oh, actually, like what what Canada has for Christianity and, and I think this probably holds true in other religions too, but I just wasn't uh, reading about that. What we have in Christianity is a history of ethnic religion. Like we don't actually have, as much as like a certain kind of evangelicalism wants to deny that um, they're being, that they're constructing it culturally, it always is. And I'll, and I'll give you some examples. Like um, in, so I married a Mennonite. And so I attended a Mennonite church for a while. They like really downplayed the fact that they're Mennonite and they really hate. And a lot of Mennonites hate to identify being Mennonite as an ethnic thing when it's just so inescapably an ethnic thing. Um, and, and it's like a massive blind spot that they don't realize this. And I don't think it's actually a problem. Um, Paul Dick, who he's actually, he attends St. Margaret's, uh, my parish. At, um, he's the English professor at CMU. He, said that several years ago, I think it was Pegwas First Nation, perhaps, um, approached CMU and they wanted to have like a direct kind of relationship with the Mennonites because they saw them as a distinct people and religion, right? And so they're like, oh, you'll get this. You'll get what we're trying to do here. And the kind of the powers that be at CMU were so determined to like deny their ethno-religious identity they wanted to kind of construe it in an abstract kind of theological sense not as like something that they're storied by the fact they went through russia and paraguay and all these kind of like ways to be here as this people um they just like completely blew that offer right like they just didn't understand the nature of the offer and they kind of blew it and when you look at a lot of the denominations particularly the older denominations in canada but now also with new waves of immigration and you get you know, Korean Presbyterians and Nigerian Pentecostals and these different kinds of things happening. Um, it's, it's always there. Um, it's always tied. You have to kind of take on that thing. And it's um, like, even at St. Margaret's, when you look at the stained glass at the front of the church, um, it's an Anglo-Saxon Jesus. And it's the, the scene of the epiphany. So it's all the, the Magi looking at Mary and, and Jesus. And and they're all different races. And so on the one hand, you can say, oh, all of the nations of the earth are seeing the Christ child. Isn't that great? 
but also the kind of the underlying ideology there is all of the all of the nations of the earth are seeing the British Empire. Isn't that great? So, mm-hmm. so like there there um, there's kind of two messages coming across there, and I think so. I think it's kind of like inescapable that you have to come. So, for me, like I realized, oh wait, like I grew up eating, you know, Christmas pudding and Yorkshire puddings, roast beef and uh reading the English literature and all this stuff and like yeah I guess I'm a wasp like I guess I, I like it's not appropriation for me to just kind of lean into that and then try to kind of from inside of that expand it and make it like um not um exclusive I suppose mm-hmm. so if I if I hear if I hear if I'm picking up what you're putting down it seems that in general you feel that it's better that everyone just acknowledge their cultural inheritance and not hide it. And, and also, it's better in terms of actually doing good in the world if you understand yourself being within a certain kind of cultural religious heritage. Like, yeah, so, yeah. so basically you being within the Anglican tradition lets you know, like, uh, gives you a family to live within and you know all the good things and all the bad things That's about right. this family. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, obviously there's, there's going to be exceptions to this. Right. But I think generally the best advice is to grow where you're planted. But um, the reason for that is because I think there's a certain thing in our society where like we think we can, we self author and I'm just not convinced by that. We, what that ends up doing is hiding a lot of things from ourselves. So it hides our besetting sins and it also hides. This is actually what, like one of the ways white supremacy operates, right? When we deny um, who we are and where we're from, we just, we then just think that we are the neutral um, set, right? We're just normal um, rather than seeing like, no, like actually like I have a perspective, uh, so uh, well, all I'm like really wanting people to own is just the fact that they are perspectived people mm-hmm. and uh, they are traditioned people and that that's okay. But what that means is like you have a lot of work to do to own the good and bad parts of your tradition. So it can never become triumphalistic. And, um, but what you should never do is just like try and like walk away. Like a lot of, like when we describe ourselves as merely like white people, um, whiteness kind of takes on the, this, the, this level of like, um, the, the default, the norm, uh, and it gets accused of being kind of like vacuous. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so I would say that the, the better way to be metropolitan actually is to be particular and Mm -hmm. precisely, um, by acknowledging uh, indigenous folks talk a lot about like all our relations as kind of like this way of acknowledging well it 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 kind of like underwrites a lot of the philosophy of like interconnectedness with uh, all your family friends uh, like the world um, all this kind of stuff but like really doing that work of identifying all all my relations I think just allows you to kind of face the world kind of unafraid and unashamed, but truthfully, right? And and it's a, like a, an ongoing work of just kind of being like, yep, I have these shortcomings. Yep, I have these blind spots. And also I have these strengths and this gift to give. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I want to do uh, in the in the Patreon exclusive um, interview later, we still have about 10 minutes here in the public episode, but in the Patreon exclusive, um, I would like to kind of talk more about um, uh, this this kind of uh, this movement in a lot of theological circles to uh, bring bring in exactly what you're talking about, um, acknowledging race and and those kinds of things. And um, yeah, I've recently finished uh, reading a couple of books on the subject, so mm. uh, I think it's a bit of a delicate subject, obviously. So uh, right. if you want to listen to it, uh, you know, <laughs> become a patron. Uh, we know that our patrons have our you know have have our best interests at heart, so we can be we can it's it's a safe space, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about that there, but let's go back to maybe a bit about Ryan. So um, I was wondering, actually, if you could talk a bit about the process of your whole like getting married and, and all that stuff and then how it relates to like uh, her faith, your faith. Um, what did that all look like? Oh, oh, gosh. Um. <laughs> She hasn't left for work yet. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, uh, so Rachel grew up vaguely Mennonite. Um, like her parents are quite Mennonite. Um, she grew up in the at Aberdeen EMC, which is like in the north end of Winnipeg. Um, so when her parents went to CMU before it was CMU, CNBC or something like that, and. Uh, the kind of the hip church to go to for young people at the time was Aberdeen EMC. Um, and it was like one of the first churches in the conference to have a woman pastor. My, like my father-in-law's great, like pride in life um, was like being on the the board of elders that like brought that to the conference. It was like, we're doing this. And when I, when I asked uh, for his blessing for, to marry Rachel, like the, the only question he had for me was like, are you okay with co-pastoring with Rachel? Cause he figured I was going to be a pastor. And I was like, well, like, I don't think she's interested in that, but she, like, I have no <laughs> problem with it. You should probably ask her that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but then uh, she like spent a bunch of time at the, this barn church. Uh, it was kind of like a non-denominational, kind of Baptist DE um, ch- kind of church at somebody's yard a few miles from their place through high school and then came to Prov and uh or I guess she went to CMU, then came to Prov. Anyways, we met because I was uh, really into missions. So I went to Providence because I thought I was going to be a missionary in South Africa. I'd gone to South Africa in high school. And I actually recently received a, a letter from myself for like 18, 19-year-old Ryan uh, saying, you know, by now you should be in South Africa as a missionary and you should have three <laughs> children. And wow. <laughs> all stuff, I was like, Oh gosh. <laughs> 18 year old, 18 year old Ryan knew what he was talking about. I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. I know. I knew way more when I was 18 than I do now. That's for sure. Yep. Um, so I was really, I was on the missions committee. I ran the missions committee for a few years on student council, which meant we put on this huge missions conference every year. And then, um, we had this ongoing partnership with uh, a project in um, the Dominican Republic where we raised money for them. And then eventually I led a team down there and Rachel was on that team. And so that's how we got to know each other, uh, you know, on the beaks, on the beaches of the Dominican. (laughs) And uh, then, yeah, we kind of like, we started dating after grad and kind of that year um, between 
while I was working, I just kind of spent all the money I made on wooing her. <laughs> and we were both like fairly pragmatic people. We realized, well, this is moving towards marriage. So do we wait till next summer? And then like, I wanted to start seminary. She was going back. Uh, she was like doing this hairstyling thing at the time where she needed to do like a few years of apprenticeship to get her red seal. Um, and we're like, well, it makes more financial sense to get married and move in together. Cause we, we were both a little bit too conservative to just move in together. So, um, so yeah, so we got married like in October of that year, like actually a week before you guys, I think we came back from our honeymoon a little bit early so I could sing in your wedding. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but like Rachel is pious, but not, um, doesn't have like strong opinions about theology. So more or less when it came to like her convictions, are like you go to church cause it's good for you. Not because you like it. Um, mm -hmm. And she'll get involved, like she'll teach Sunday school and do these kinds of things. But where that takes place, not like she's like she's told me she's like, well, I'm never gonna like super enjoy it wherever. So like wherever you need to be, yeah. like I can make it work kind of thing. So we were at, we were at the Mennonite Church for a while in Niverville, and then slowly got sucked into St. Mark's. I think she doesn't like it as much as I do. She would probably mm -hmm. be happier at like um, a slightly less liturgical church but over time she's getting to know people here and she's been involved in some of the sunday school stuff and while i was away in england last year um and i was kind of like out of the way to to not suck up so much of the church space she i think found more of a home at saint margaret's than while i had been there so that was kind of good mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh we got about five minutes do you want to talk a little bit about uh your experience of going to scotland Scotland or England? England. Sorry, you went to England. Yeah. Wait, well, where I, did you go? I've been to both, but uh, well, I was living in Ing I was living in Birmingham uh, most. Oh, of okay. Time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I started a PhD last fall, and mm -hmm. that was at the University of Birmingham. So I was living there. Um, we had originally thought we were going to move there together. Then uh, I didn't get enough. I didn't get any funding. So then we're we we're going to say, well, maybe I'll just do it by distance. And then the university kind of screwed the university or I, I don't know, some, something got screwed up. The paperwork didn't go through anyways, last minute they, they approved a bunch of funding for me, but I had to move there to get it. So instead of paying like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in student loans, we were going to be able to get out of this with maybe no student debt, or like maybe at most 10 to 15,000. So like drastically reducing the amount of debt. Um, mm -hmm. So, I decided to move there by myself because Rachel had already gotten a job as a teacher and was kind of on the cusp of getting, she needed one more year in the system to get permanent. And mm -hmm. so we're like, well, we should prioritize that because then, you know, even if I get a PhD, I'll be making peanuts for the next few years. So um, she should probably have a good paying job with a pension mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So she stayed here. I went there. That was pretty miserable. Birmingham is all right. It's a pretty industrial city. It's a lot like Hamilton. Mm -hmm. um but yeah i didn't love it because the community wasn't super great and i was quite poor so i had been right. to the uk before on as a tourist and i gone to all the tourist places and had cash to burn and that was great and i loved it and then i went and lived there on like you know less money than people who are on universal credit get that was not 
fun, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like it was, it was still good. Like I, I was able to get around I met a few people and now actually like, uh, being back here with some distance from it and being kind of like in a better emotional and mental state because I'm, you know, in my own house with my wife. And even though there's a pandemic going on, uh, I can like look back and, and see like, Oh, there was actually all these things I actually really loved about being there. Um, yeah, it was just, it was mm-hmm. mostly, I mostly would like go to the school, sit in an office, read books all day, go for a pint, come home, you know. It sounds like the dream life, you know? Yeah, it was just wet and cold all the time. Like, mm-hmm. it, I never was dry, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I was just there in the winter, so it just rained every single day. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, being from Manitoba, it doesn't rain a lot here, so. No, it's sunny. Every day of winter is like yeah. a beautiful sunny day. Yeah. I, I never really believed in like sad before, like seasonal affective disorder mm-hmm. until I lived in Birmingham and it just rained yeah. every bloody well, day. Ha- Hamilton here, it's, it's, uh, it's, that's winter is gray and wet. Yeah. W- that's winter. Right. And, and I explain how I much prefer Winnipeg winters and people think I'm crazy. And I'm like, you don't get no. it. It's dry and sunny every day. Yeah, well, don't don't we have another Queens Brigade song about that? Yeah, do we? I don't know. Maybe it's the we, geese song. I don't know. Yeah, geese is all about the geese flying south in the winter and how they are smart and we are stupid for not going with them. <laughs> Written by a German immigrant, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Actually, we're doing something I've never done before on the Prying Priest podcast, which is we're not going to end with the usual song. We're actually going to end with the ending of the album, Under All the Layers. So I'm I'm not going to play the whole song. You have to go onto iTunes or whatever to find it. But I'll play the ending of it. It's very beautiful. I believe that everyone in the band, including like our partners, like uh, Rachel and Kyla and, and some other friends of Queen's Brigade, all came into my basement to sing in the choir that we had at the end. Oh, yeah, that's um, great. So if you hear like all these voices, those are a mix of uh, a lot of our friends and everything. So Yeah, yeah, yeah it was good cool. times. Well, I'm going to hit play on this uh, song. I'll fade it in, and that'll be the uh, the end of the public episode. Uh, if you want to continue listening to Ryan and me chat about uh, all issues, uh, sign up for Patreon, because if you're not a patron, you're literally missing half of a podcast. You're only getting half a podcast if you're not a patron. So become a patron. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll put it on, and then we'll see you soon.
and find yourself there.